This is Getting Lit with Linda Mora, the podcast where you can come and get lit, Canadian lit, that is. Join Linda as she talks about authors in Canada and sometimes with them, using her expertise to shed light on recent and not-so-recent writers. And now, get set for Getting Lit with Linda. Hi, this is Linda Mora, and welcome to Getting Lit with Linda. I'm really pleased that for today's episode, I have with me Michael Nest the author and one of the collaborators of Cold Case North. Michael is the award-winning author of three nonfiction books. Corruption, Mining, and Conflict are the theme of the first two. The third, Still a Pygmy, was written in a collaboration with Indigenous Congolese activist Isaac Bacharongo. Welcome, Michael. Thank you. Let's uh, begin with a brief introduction to the book. For readers who've not yet picked up the book, What is Cold Case North about? In a key way, it is an investigation into the mysterious disappearance of two Indigenous activists in northern Saskatchewan in 1967. One of them, James Brady or Jim Brady, was Métis, and the other, Absalom Helcott or Abby Helcott, was Cree. And the circumstances of their disappearance has fascinated observers and the local community for half a century because nobody could understand what happened. The police came up with a story that they must have got lost in the bush because they had been uh, camping at a remote lakeside uh, prospecting site and had um, abandoned all of their camp and then just vanished. So the police said they must have got lost and tried to walk out. But the local community never believed that story. And Mm. the key reason they didn't believe that story in particular is because Jim Brady in particular was a highly political figure who was really famous in the 1930s, 40s and 50s in the prairies across Alberta, Saskatchewan and Manitoba for his activist work to recognise Métis rights to organize Métis people. And that meant he had a lot of enemies. He had enemies in big business, in the church, and in government. And Absalom Helcott did effectively what Jim Brady did, but at a much more local level. So he was a a former councillor of the Lac-la-Ronde Indian Band Council. Um, So him and Jim were very aligned politically uh, and that meant that they had political enemies. Um, so the the community suspected that foul play had been involved. So that that tragic disappearance is the core of the story. But in fact, a large part of the book takes place uh, you know, effectively today when myself and my two co-authors, Deanna Rader and Eric Bell, uh, investigated what happened and went through materials, interviewed people. So in that sense, it's a very contemporary story of trying to engage with the community and understand the community's beliefs and memories about what happened and uncovering that slowly um, as people came to trust us and came to tell us things. How did you learn about this story? Well. I had read um, the Canadian classic Half-Breed by Maria Campbell. Oh, yeah. And actually, she mentions Jim Brady. Yes, it does. That name had lodged itself in my head. 
And then I moved to Canada four years ago in 2017. And I had literally been in the country three days when Deanna called me and said (laughs) that she wanted to, to tell to me. And the mystery was about a man called Jim Brady. And the name rang a bell. I, I remembered it from Maria Campbell's book, although I knew very, very little about him. And um, that was the, the first connection that Deanna and I made about this story. How did Deanna hear about you? Why was it that she called you three days after your arrival in Canada? And for the, uh, the audience who is listening, where are you from? It should be obvious, but let's, let's just say it for the record. Right. Yeah, so I'm Australian originally. And for the last, the the 13 years before I moved to Canada, I was living in Sydney, in New South Wales. And I actually met Deanna in late 2014 in Vancouver. My partner was on sabbatical at the University of British Columbia. We were there for four months and I had time on my hands. I had just finished collaborating with Isaac Bacharongo, who you mentioned in your introduction, who is an Indigenous Twa, or more commonly known as Pygmy, activist from the Democratic Republic of Congo in Central Africa. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had collaborated on writing his memoir, and he's the first pygmy to ever write his memoir, and the, the book is called Still a Pygmy. So that book was about to come out, and I became interested in Indigenous memoir as a genre, and I wondered whether people who worked on Indigenous memoir would be interested in Isaac's story, but I also wanted to know how other people had had, uh, written these kind of stories because there's a very particular kind of collaboration, I think. Um, So I had time on my hands. I Googled people in Vancouver who might be knowledgeable about such things and I came across Deanna and I just sent her an email. So effectively it was like a a cold call. And uh, I explained my project with Isaac, expressed interest in her own work and uh, read some of it. And we met for coffee, hit it off, and then we met a couple of times before I had to head back to Australia. And it was only two years after that when I actually moved to Canada in 2017 that Deanna approached me to work on the project that became Cold Case North. You say that there is a particular kind of collaboration that's involved in this kind of book. Could you expand on that? What does that mean exactly? Yeah, I mean, in the case of Still a Pygmy, um, it was effectively Isaac's personal oral history. Mm-hmm. So I transcribed that and um, shaped it into a written form of a book. But um, I think, you know, to be honest, there is just this history of settlers and Indigenous people. Mm-hmm. that surrounds us and engulfs us, whether we like it or not. And it's easy for, I think, for the non-Indigenous person, for narratives to come into our head, like, you know, whether we like it or not, mm-hmm. simply growing up in Western society. So sometimes those narratives were sources of mistakes that I might have made about um, asking a question that I'd, either phrased insensitively or that I um, simply didn't really understand the issue or I didn't understand a particular reticence or that I uh, needed to allow more time and accept that 
this story was going to be told in layers. So there's a lot of, you know, recalibrating and adjusting and self-reflection that's required. But, you know, the the narratives that are the baggage of non-Indigenous people, I mean, they're really like a swarm of mosquitoes. <laughs> and sometimes you just have to swat them away in order to think clearly. But first of all, you have to recognise that they're, they're these thoughts that you have to deal with before you can become open enough to actually hear the story that the person is trying to tell you. That recalibrating, um, I observed, was part of the narrative. You actually incorporated or integrated that kind of reflection into the narrative, which is one of the features I deeply appreciated about it. I thought it was so refined to have done that. Could you comment on your decision to include that kind of reflection in the narrative? Yeah, um, it originally became part of the text, that kind of reflection and mulling over, you know, how to go forward and trying to figure out protocols, for example. So it became part of the text initially really just as I was putting down everything that happened to me. But I realised that as I started to write that and also as I told other non-Indigenous people about this project, people were really interested in the experience that that I was going through or, the, or that I was having. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think Deanna, Eric and I, we, we realised that we were working very well together as a team, that we really trusted each other, we had specific roles, um, we often thought, thought similarly about some things, but we were quick to say when we had a misunderstanding or we had um, a difference of opinion. And then I remember at one point having a conversation with Deanna and saying, you know, I really think we need in the book words and passages about how this kind of collaboration can work because um, at, this is a bit of a tangent, but a, a common response when I told people about this story was that, oh, that's so sad, it's so tragic, isn't it depressing? And actually mm. it, it, it wasn't depressing. So the, the heart of the story is a tragedy this tragic disappearance of two men who were really in their prime and had contributed tremendously to the communities. And that was always front and centre, and we remembered that. But actually, the not just the creative process, but the process of engaging with the, with the Indigenous community in and around La Ronge, where the, the story really unfolds, you know, we came across fun, funny, smart, intelligent, warm, generous people who were getting on with their lives, who had this, what I thought was a a really healthy sense of balance between respecting and appreciating their history, and that includes people like Jim Abbey, but also very engaged with the modern world. And that kind of positive energy, I think, was reflected in our own collaboration, so Deanna, Eric and I. And I wanted to put that on the page so readers would think this is not a book about a tragedy, although in one sense it is about a tragedy, but beyond that it is really a book about how people can work together and how it is possible for non-Indigenous people to work respectfully with Indigenous people and how 
positive, creative endeavors uh, can, can come out of that collaboration. Let's go back a little bit to your discussion about Deanna reaching out to you. I'm sure Deanna has reasons for having done that. What are the reasons to your mind for Deanna having invited you to work on this book with her? Right. So it it really goes back to the stories in the community about what happened to Jim and Abby. And a common story in the community was that they disappeared because their murder had been organized by three white men who were business partners with Jim and Abby in a mining venture. So the story is that Jim, probably Jim, but possibly Jim together with Abby, had found a valuable deposit of minerals and their business partners wanted to get rid of the two indigenous business partners in order to take over the claim. So Deanna was sure that researching this kind of uh, mystery required looking into documents around mineral claims, mining company documents, and laws around mining to try to find clues about this line of inquiry. So for my day job, I work on anti-corruption issues, especially around the mining sector. And Deanna has a huge amount of research in research, but she had not dealt with mining issues before. So she thought I might be able to help. And then because of my work with Isaac, um, the pygmy activist, on his memoir, Deanna knew that I was capable of writing a book. And from our conversations about my work with Isaac, I think it would have been apparent to her that I appreciated the uh, sensitivities of working with people from another culture, in, including Indigenous people. And most importantly, that I was capable of getting my own ego out of the way in trying to understand and achieve what my Indigenous collaborators wanted out of a project. And um, therefore, you know, there was always a chance that the project would not come off or we would get to a, a hurdle and family members would tell us that they did not want us to continue. And so it's true from the start, I knew that I would be able to back out and I guess I, I conveyed that to Deanna. I found it really interesting when you mentioned that you're, in your day job you work uh, in relation to researching mining companies. Could you speak a little bit more about that as your full-time job and then talk about how that, again, in greater detail, had a bearing on the research that you did for this book? I mean, the mining sector is a behemoth around the world. It employs millions of people. It generates billions of dollars in profits for people who typically don't live anywhere near the mines. Investors tend to live in, you know, Toronto, New York City, Sydney, London, Paris. Mm -hmm. It creates a huge amount of um, environmental disruption, which in many cases includes pollution or environmental effects that are difficult to uh, remediate properly. Um, and that combination of high stakes profits means that, uh, well, that combination of high-stakes profits plus the historic connections between people who own mining companies and politicians means that mining companies have really had a free run for a very long time, for, for centuries. And local communities really just didn't have the power or the political influence to, um, to constrain them or to, to shape it to shape the mining sector or to get much profit themselves, whether that was traditional in the form of uh, Indigenous people 
or even workers. I mean, workers were typically, you know, very poorly paid, lowly paid, and conditions were bad and often very dangerous. So in the last 40 to 50 years, that's really changed. There's this, been this enormous um, uh, organising, this enormous degree of organising around the mining sector that has tried to check its negative effects in, in many different ways. So that's partly come about through governments that uh, are trying to extract more revenue than they were able to in the past. So not just in rich countries like Canada and Australia, but also in Africa and Asia. So decolonization was a, a huge part of this. Mm-hmm. Newly independent countries with newly independent governments uh, needed revenue, but also knew that they had had a bad deal under colonization. Um So that's one aspect of it. But also in countries like the United States, Australia and Canada in particular, Indigenous people became very organised and learned how to use the law to push back against mining companies and try to shape and change the damage they did and the extent of mining. That has not always been successful, but it has really revolutionised mining. I mean, mining companies really just cannot do whatever they want anymore. At the same time, there are many civil society organisations that have attempted to improve accountability and transparency for environmental reasons or, again, simply for social reasons or labour reasons. And all of that has meant changing government regulation and laws to push mining companies to become more transparent, to declare what they pay to foreign governments, to clean up the mess they make, uh, to stop the dirty practices in terms of corruption about bribing foreign officials, for example, to allow them to set up a mine. And my work has really dealt with a lot of the effort in both government and civil society organisations to try to revise and change laws and regulations to make mining companies more accountable and transparent. But a, a key part of that has been around corruption. I've worked on a $100 million coal mine corruption scandal in Australia. So it's not just this. So the, the corrupt family got $30 million. Um, so this was all investigated and um, the main perpetrator has gone to, you know, went to jail. Wow. But that kind of example has been writ large across places like Africa where I've done a lot of work as governments and communities try to push back against the sector that have really had a free reign for a century. How difficult is it to get transparency in terms of your research in relation to mining companies and and the levels of corruption which you were just addressing? I mean, the transparency is really part of general anti-corruption work and it's an ongoing progress. So mining companies use the laws as they can and as they are able to, to reduce what people know about what they do. There is a spectrum. So often we like to think of larger mining companies as the big bad wolf, but often those larger companies that are publicly owned by shareholders definitely feel the pressure more and actually are more transparent about what they do or what they plan to do in terms of the actual mining process itself, the side effects on where where communities live, but also the kind of programs that they're willing to put in place 
to either employ people or return um, some level of profits back to the affected community. And in fact, it's the often the smaller community, the smaller companies and the medium-sized companies where there is a lot less transparency. And um, Canada in particular, I've got to say, is Canada is known as the Wild West for mining. <laughs> and I, I don't mean that way out in um, the Northwest Territories, that's the Wild West. What I mean is on the stock exchanges in Vancouver and Toronto, where people go to raise money, there is a lot of spin. So part of this is in the book too. There's a lot of spin around prospecting and mine development. There are a lot of half-truths told to get people to part with their money. And that's the Wild West, where um, not a lot of questions are always asked and a lot of half-truths are put out by especially smaller mining companies um, about what they've found and what they're willing to do. And it's also somebody else will buy the company or buy shares in their company and part with their money. So somebody who does not live anywhere near the mine will make a lot of money in turn. It's interesting. There are these narratives of Canadian exceptionalism that circulate, and this is clearly uh, this is clearly a kind of case where we show that that actually isn't true. That in in point of fact, those kinds of narratives don't hold true when we're looking at the mining industry in Canada. That's right. I mean, one of the hurdles that I was never able to resolve, uh, really overcome, uh, in this project was that. The company that was allegedly owned by Jim Brady, Abby Helcott, and the three white business partners was called Lower, uh, was called Foster Lakes Incorporated. Canada, there are laws that are called beneficial ownership laws, mm-hmm. and in Canada, it was almost impossible legally to find out who actually controls a company, because the law in Canada allowed intermediaries in the form of directors to put their names on corporate registry documents and actually deliberately disguise who really owns a company. So Canada was amongst the worst countries in the world for this. And there have been, there's been a huge amount of work by organizations like Transparency International Canada, Mining Watch Canada, um, that have been trying from within the country to get that legal change. And in fact, um, just this year, about a month ago, the uh, government in Ottawa has announced that it is now willing to set up what is called a beneficial ownership registry where mining companies will be compelled by law to say who really owns their company. Oh, that's great. Yeah, it, it, it's a, it is truly a magnificent achievement. And if, if you're outside the field, it can be difficult to appreciate. But this was really a, um, a key problem for, for me in my, my research into Jim and Abby's disappearance back in 1967. It has real consequences. You know, th- those laws had real consequences and they were in place for a century in Canada because it suited mining companies and politicians who protected interests. You know, I can tell speaking with you, this is not just your day job. And you've already said so in so far as you did this book voluntarily outside of your regular hours. Can you speak to that a little bit about what drives you? I mean, for this particular project, to be honest, there are a couple of reasons. I mean, one is, and again, this is sort of somewhat tangential, but it's key to the story of why I'm in Canada. Uh, so my, my partner's mother is now 90 and has dementia. We threw in our life to Sydney to move to Canada to look after her. Mm. And um, my partner got into a PhD program in McGill, but I was otherwise unoccupied. So the, the project gave me something to do. Mm. 
It was an insight into Canada, which was really fascinating for me. You know, Australians, and I, I think a certain set of Canadians have this idea that Australia and Canada are so similar, and I, I constantly hear this. It's usually Anglophone, middle-class, white Australians who say that about Canada. The people they're talking about are actually Anglophone, white, middle-class Canadians. Mm-hmm. So here I was living in Quebec, learning French, trying to follow the French media, trying to read um, books by Quebecers because I wanted to understand the history of Quebec. Mm. The project had me engage with Indigenous people in Saskatchewan. Those two aspects of Canada are totally different to Australia. So the the project was an entree into a really different kind of Canada, but it was also a door to Canada's underbelly, you know, with the, the disappearance of Jim and Abby, But then as I looked into it more and more, the police response. Or lack thereof. Right, exactly. It was this curious response that I I come from a part of society where the police tend to treat me well and I tend to I've I've worked with police in the past and I tend to have, you know, a reasonably positive view of them because of my interactions with them. So I was reading what the police said about this case and thinking, but this must be wrong. Um, am I not understanding what they were saying, what they are saying in, in documents mm-hmm. like the coroner's inquest transcript or an interview that was done with the police commander in charge of the search? And then, of course, you know, the penny drops in a way that it, it never needed to for the Indigenous people. Yes. Right. Right. They knew all along. And then, you know, finally I arrived and thought, no, I'm not imagining it. The police have these narratives in their head about Indigenous people and what must have happened. And I think it it really blinded them to other possibilities. That's where there was really an opening for our own investigation and then a book about those other possibilities about what might have happened to them. Yes, unconscious or conscious bias, whichever way it is. The book makes this quite apparent. Could you speak a little bit about the kinds of research. So you've spoken about research with minds and so forth. I was amazed. I'm a researcher in a completely different capacity, but I was really impressed by your savvy in terms of knowing where to look, knowing how to look at particular documents. So there are some documents that had already been examined, but in one crucial moment, you say something like, and there it was, the clue was there all along. I was struck by not only the fact that you knew where to look, but also how to look, how to look at the key evidence that you had in front of you. I guess in terms of this, the skill set, you know, I've been shaped by, um, as everybody is, I've been shaped by the kind of training that I've had and, you know, the colleagues I've had. So um, part of my anti-corruption work back in Australia, I worked for an anti-corruption commission. And um, I worked with investigators very closely on investigations. So the investigators were typically former police officers. And I, I listened to them. I listened to the way they spoke. I listened to the questions they asked. Um, I read what they read. Um, I, I've watched scores, if not hundreds of people be interviewed and often when in the Anti-Corruption Commission, we knew when they were lying because we had phone taps or we already had records about what they'd done. And um, most people don't get that kind of exposure, but once you get an insight into that, it, it, um, it makes you listen more carefully. Mm-hmm. So 
that's that's one set of professional experience. Um, the other experience, and this is just going to sound like a plug for studying English literature, is that I studied <laughs> English literature and I studied political science and those disciplines, but especially English, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's about reading and paying attention to the text, that words on the page matter and that people make choices about their vocabulary. Correct. Um, exactly. Yes. Sometimes that is unconscious. It's their unco- their subconscious that is actually steering their word choice, even if they don't say I'm choosing you know one word rather than another. And um, literature te- teaches you to read interview transcripts, you know, pretty well. I think. Yes. So I was able to to come to this project with both professional experience, with colleagues and mentors who'd really taught me to to listen to people in in the legal context. But also I had been trained through studying English literature and, um, you know, I have, I have a doctorate in political science and that, that involves reading libraries and libraries and libraries of, of other people's work. <laughs> oh, yes, I can attest to that as well, yes. Right, right. Um, so all of that helped when it, when it actually came to the different kinds of um, documents and information that I actually had to uh, examine. Let's turn a little bit toward the community with whom you were interacting. So we've talked a lot about the research and the reasons for Deanna inviting you to participate in the project, but could you talk to me about your interactions with community members now? My interaction was really guided and um, actually shepherded is the best word. My interaction was really shepherded by Deanna and Eric, my co-authors, because um, certainly the very first trip that I made to Saskatchewan, which was to interview Deanna's uncle, Frank Tompkins, Deanna had to go home one day earlier than, than I did. So I visited him alone, but by that time we, you know, had, had met each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I went up to Larange the first time, it was with again with Deanna, and then I went back a second time, uh, and that was without Deanna, but both times we actually stayed with Eric and his wife, uh, Wanda. Like, I don't really know how I, I, I came across, but um, it must, I, I was very conscious of my accent that um, the second I opened my mouth, mm-hmm. it was clear that if I don't talk, I might pass for, uh, you know, an Anglophone settler, white Canadian. But actually the second I opened my mouth, it's pretty clear that I'm I'm not from Canada. Then when I would ask some really naive questions, like really basic questions about <laughs> where are certain towns, you know, that everybody in Saskatchewan would know because they learned it in school or they just grew up with that kind of news. It was really clear that I was truly an outsider. I, I think that Indigenous people, well, actually, if I can go back a step, I think I, I could not have done this kind of project in Australia mm-hmm. because... In Australia, Indigenous people would say, like, where, you're Australian. Where did you go to school? Like, why haven't you read up about this? <laughs> if you're interested in Indigenous anything, like, why haven't you read these basic books? And they would be very legitimate questions that would have cast doubts on my, I guess, my true interest or in integrity. Mm-hmm. And in Canada, I had 
you know, I, I went to Saskatchewan after being here for a month. I, di- I didn't know anything. <laughs> you know, I barely knew that Manitoba and Ontario lay between Quebec and Saskatchewan. So when people found out that I was so new to the country and that I was asking these questions, but I was asking them very openly, I think they relaxed and realized that they were dealing with somebody who was genuine in motivation, but was clearly clueless about many things. Mm-hmm. We actually got to the topic of Jim and Abby. I, I think Indigenous people saw that I'd done my homework. So I, I had actually read whatever I could get my hands on. I was very clear that there were things that I didn't know. I was never really stuck in a certain mindset. And I think that's the advantage of being an outsider. I mean, at, being an outsider definitely has some downsides to it. But one of the the upsides is that you really just have no baggage. And I think when I met Indigenous people in Saskatchewan, it was clear that I didn't really come with a lot of baggage. So I didn't have baggage about the police. I didn't have baggage about a particular narrative about what might have happened to Jim and Abby. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I kind of would see, you know, a look pass over somebody's face. And I think they were really just registering that while I was open, I also had not dismissed things that they themselves had dismissed. So they were, uh, I was open to putting them in a situation where they could correct me. And people who don't, you know, often don't get listened to or felt, you know, for 50 years, this story had been completely, completely buried and where it had come to light. There was just this false narrative about what had happened. And then I came along with Deanna and Eric and we said, you know, we really, we really want to look at this seriously and we think mm-hmm. we are finding things, but there is more to know and the community is really where that kind of information is most likely kept. I think people responded to that. Mm-hmm. At one point there is a, a sad and whimsical response about how Jim and Abby must have been taken away by UFOs, that this is a a possible, yeah, you're laughing, that this is a a possible narrative because there is no other one that will be properly entertained. That's right. So that was Deanna's mom who said, um, you know, somewhat fantastically, possibly UFOs had taken them. But I think that's, that comment comes from two places. One is that it's a practical observation about this totally intact campsite where they, Jim and Abby had last camped the butter was out. You know, the bread was out. They were expecting to return. There was no doubt about it. No doubt about it at all. And they had literally just vanished. So there was no sign of a scuffle, no sign of an intruder. Um, nothing had been tipped over. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you can imagine the kind of stillness, maybe with a bird tweeting in the background, as the first investigators, the the RCMP actually came along. So that was one thing that you can imagine a UFO hovering overhead and literally just sucking them (laughs) up. But I think the other thing is that it's the absurdity of the UFO story that actually connects to the absurdity of the RCMP narrative. Absolutely. You know, we discuss in the book and then really got, you know, laid out and explained again in the coroner's inquest And that is that these two smart, fully grown, bush-capable men chose the impossible choice or chose the the pointless and unlikely route out of their 
some predicament that they were in, and that is they decided to walk hundreds of miles through the bush to the Churchill River. So it's the absurdity that that became the dominant narrative as well that kind of, you know, really connects with this UFO idea as well, that it might as well have been UFOs. If that's going to be the dominant story, it might as well, you know, maybe they were taken, in fact, by UFOs. Did you write this as you were researching? How did you write it? And were there multiple drafts? Did Deanna look it over? What was the process like? Yeah. Um, so my my practice in writing is to, so, so this has been the same with, with all my books. Really, it's to try to put things down on paper as quickly as possible when they come to me. So the text is very unformed at that stage, but I always, I don't, if I have an idea or a thought about, you know, mm-hmm. something, I don't um, wait until the next day to write it down. Oh, yeah. Um, and I do that partly to because I know that sometimes I forget. The other reason is actually I really, I really love the writing process. So for me, it's enjoyable. And then I guess the other reason I write like that is that, you know, some people have writer's block and they really suffer from simply being able to get words down on the page. And I, I've never had writer's block. Lucky you. That's all I can think. Lucky you. <laughs> well, I mean, there's probably two reasons. One is that from working in government, um, where I worked for, you know, quite a few years, you have these deadlines and you've just got to spit it out. I mean, there is there is no space for people who can't write to deadlines because you've got to get, you know, a brief to the minister or you've got to get a report done on time, and and that's that. So you know, you have to deal with that stress or you just, you know, leave that job. Mm-hmm. But I think the other thing is that I always thought of first drafts of text are like it's like making a clay pot. First, you need the clay, and you know, when you when you get clay, you manipulate it you add the right amount of moisture, and then when you've got the clay, it's in the state you want it. It's after that point that you actually create the vessel. Yes. And I think once I started to think about writing like that, the first draft, so that's just getting words on the page, is really like getting the clay in shape. So for, for Cold Case North, I drafted bits and pieces very quickly. Whenever I um, made a visit to Saskatchewan, I would keep notes often throughout the day, but certainly at the end of the day. And then I would start to type them up. So I nearly always kept handwritten notes, carried around um, the notebook with me, uh, and then I would type them up. Mm-hmm. So the, the the book is largely in, it, it's in three parts. And when the first, when each part was in what I thought was a reasonable state, that's when I um, first sent it to Deanna for a first read. So Deanna would have read the whole manuscript Hmm. probably pretty early, pr- quite soon after I drafted the entire thing. I mean, like all writers, you know that you want to tweak things before you actually get to look at it because you don't want to waste their time, basically. Yeah. But Deanna would have looked at the whole manuscript, I think, at least seven or eight times. Eric would have read it, I think he read it four times. And, you know, it's uh, so helpful and important to get feedback from people. It really is beautifully, elegantly, I almost want to say seamlessly written, um, which I say in the corresponding episode. Um, Is there anything that you would do differently? Is there anything that in hindsight you think, oh, I I really wish I had done that? Or 
you know, I should have approached it this way. Are you satisfied with the results of what you did? I, I am satisfied with the result, um, largely because of the response that I've read in reviews, but also sometimes direct approaches to myself, Deanna or Eric, from Indigenous readers. So, of course, when you write a book, you really want lots of people to write it. And, you know, I really don't like to think that I have a hierarchy of readers, but I really cared a lot that Jim Brady's daughter, Anne Dorian, and Abby Helke's daughter, Helkett's daughter, Rima Helkett, oh, yeah. that they that they that they approved of the book. And then beyond that, other family members as well. And uh, I mean Anne Dorian, she's a really Jim Jim's daughter. You know, she's a very accomplished, smart woman who's a writer in her own right. So she read through a draft and then we spoke on the phone and she gave me corrections. Mm. Rima Helkett, I, I sent her one of the very first copies that I had of the completed book and you know i texted her and i said rima what did you think you know i'm dying to know and she said i cried through the last three chapters that was my response and i don't have the same proximity yeah yeah so that's that's really um i mean it's really like a wonderful feeling of accomplishment that you know the the, the people that i really wanted to like the book like it and respect what, what we've managed to do. Would I change anything? I mean, I guess in hindsight, like the whole, the whole project um, took, uh, what was it, three and a half years? Oh, wow. Um, from the very first phone call from Deanna to when the book was actually released in November um, 2020. Um, so it kind of... It, it sounds strange to say, I wish I had more time. But um, <laughs> in retrospect, you know, you you realise there are more people out there that you could have spoken to. I'm not actually sure how much additional detail, to be honest, they would have given me. But um, I guess I, I liked, I really liked that project, that, that process of um, meeting with people who are connected to the disappearance and their family members, because it's, it's a, you know, this book is really, in, in one way, it's a project about memory and how people remember things and why they remember things. You know, we, the, the written word has power in our society in the way that other forms of storytelling don't. You know, I think that kind of, um, that kind of confidence in the written word is sometimes really misplaced. Um, so maybe that's strange for a writer to hear a writer say that. But the reason I say that is that mm-hmm. of all the, the families we connected with through this story, like they'd told stories about this disappearance for 50 years around the kitchen table. Wow. It was their family story and they knew things that other people didn't know. And for some of them, I know that it has been a shock to suddenly know, to, for first of all, to see this book about a story that they thought was their family story that tells event tells of events in a different way, but also includes information that they did not know about mm-hmm. when they thought that they had the complete story. It's been this really fascinating project around memory and stories and who thinks they know the truth, but how those truths actually you know, come together and, and weave together. I mean, we don't, Jan, Eric and I, we don't think that Cold Case North is the definitive end-all 
account of what happened to Jim and Abby, and we hope that it won't be. We really hope that this is the catalyst for more research about both men. And I, and I guess this brings me back to your original question about yeah. do I hope that anything was different? So since the book has come out, people have come forward. Like there's been this wave of information, little tidbits of information about things in the book and people have been able to add to that. So there has been, mm-hmm. I think there have been no outright contradictions of any fact that we have put forward as fact. So that's that's gratifying. We didn't make any huge mistakes um, in that respect because the, the book is also an assembly of facts in the form of, you know, true crime. So much more than true crime, isn't it? Yeah. It extends well beyond that. Yes, yes. No, I, I think that's absolutely right. Um, so there's a story in the book uh, about a raft that was found at, a, at an isolated lake. And the raft is really key to the RCMP's story because the RCMP say the raft was built by Jim or Abby and through that raft and a couple of other tiny clues, you can trace that there was some kind of trajectory out of Lower Foster Lake and this must clearly be evidence that they tried to walk out. A few months ago, somebody sitting north of LaRange was reading the book, read that passage and said, I made that raft. (laughs) That person was a friend of a friend of Eric's. The story, you know, people talk about log jams, that a log goes and then there is this torrent of torrent of energy, Mm. you know, typically in a river. And uh, that's what's happened with this book. So actually, I just, I I got a phone call from Eric yesterday and he said somebody else has come forward and said they've got a piece of information. That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah. So this has all been, from what I gather, satisfactory experience for everyone involved thus far. And moreover, we haven't talked about this, but the book has been shortlisted for a prize, has it not? That's right. And it it feels incredibly humbling and gratifying. Cold Case North is a finalist. There, there are five finalists in the Crime Writers of Canada's, and it's called the Brass Knuckles True Crime. <laughs> it's, it's such a fantastic title. So the winner will be announced on May 27th. And we have really esteemed company. So the, the other writers are very accomplished. There's some really compelling true crime stories. So one is about the serial killer in Toronto's Gay Village. Oh, yes. There is another about two individuals from an Arcadian community in Cap Creton in Nova Scotia who murdered another member of that community <sighs> in what was initially reported as murder for lobsters. But actually it's, it's, you know, it's really a story of revenge and conflict in this small community mm-hmm. and the, you know, the victim uh, and what, what he was like within that community, what he did to people and uh, two people who, you know, two men, two fishermen who had no criminal history at all. And, um, you know, they, they ended up murdering him. So, uh, you know, the field of five finalists, it's this real snapshot. So uh, another book is by an undercover cop who worked on Vancouver's Granby Street, you know, drug drug strip, mm-hmm. 80s when it was a really bleak place. And then there is another book by a man who investigates the suspicious death of his mother and basically concludes that it was his father who murdered his mother. And, you know, the, the five stories together 
they're all they're all they have some overlaps but they're all very different and they tell uh, they all tell a different side of Canada and Canada's underbelly I I can vouch for the quality of this particular book I haven't read the others but I can certainly say that Cold Case North warrants this kind of recognition um, we should probably tell our listeners where they can get a copy of their book and where else they can find more information. Yes, so the book is available in independent bookstores. If your bookstore doesn't have it, then you can order. always ask them to order it. You can get it at the usual places online, um, and you can also get it in large chain bookstores as well. For people in La Ronge in northern Saskatchewan, where there are no dedicated bookshops. Mm-hmm. One of the great things about Larange is that you do what you can. So the, the visitor's information sells copies of the book and also Robertson's Trading, which is like this old-fashioned store that sells everything. It sells copies of the book as well as other copies, as well as other books about um, uh, Saskatchewan generally. So it's just great that there are, there are non-bookstores that also sell the book. And uh, we created a Facebook page. Oh, great. The reviews that we've had, um, we've had a couple of television interviews. There's been a, a television review of the book and the nomination as a finalist by Crime Writers of Canada. All of that is on the Facebook page and we'll update that page as, you know, new things happen. But also you can contact us and, um, you know, we love book clubs, we love books and um, we're really open to, to speaking to your group or, you know, for uh, listeners out there who are teachers and have students, you know, we'd really love to do that too. Oh, I'm sure you'll be contacted for that. Thank you, Michael, for joining me today on Getting Lit with Linda. Thank you. This was Michael Nest, the author and collaborator with Deanna Rutter and with Eric Bell on Cold Case North, published by the University of Regina Press. That was Getting Lit with Linda, hosted by Linda Mora. If you have a topic you would like to see covered, write to us at gettinglitwithlinda at gmail.com. Until next time, we hope you continue to get lit.